Good morning, friends, and just a quick thank you to Beth uh, for standing up and sharing a little bit of her story. Uh, we've talked a lot uh, in this book of Philippians about what does it mean to stand up for Christ and to shine like stars in the world. And so it's good to hear uh, just uh, one person's experience of seeking to do that faithfully in the workplace. It'd be great to keep your Bible open uh, as we look at this passage. Uh, let me pray for our time together. Dear Father, we thank you for your servant Paul and the words you inspired him to write to the Christians in Philippi. I pray as we look at your word today that you will show us the wonder of your grace and the joy of your salvation. Amen. In 1517, there was a Catholic monk by the name of Martin Luther. Uh, Not to be confused with the American civil rights activist, Uh, who was Martin Luther King. Uh, And Martin Luther, the monk, uh, was so profoundly disillusioned with the teachings of the church uh, that he wrote what has come to be known as the 95 Theses. And And he stuck them on the door of the Wittenberg Castle Church in Germany. And that was the beginning of what came to be known as the Reformation, uh, where the church was being reformed back to its roots, back to what the Bible actually taught us about what it means to be a follower of Christ. And one of the pillar correctives of the Reformation was something called sola gratia, which means grace alone which uh, is Latin, uh, said by a German bloke, uh, which would have sounded infinitely more impressive than the way I sounded. Uh, But it's it's in response to the question, how are we saved from the consequences of our sin? So the Bible teaches us that the death and resurrection of Jesus on the cross made salvation possible. And there is nothing more we can contribute. We cannot save ourselves by good works and we cannot bribe our way into heaven. All we can do is accept God's mercy and acknowledge Christ as both Saviour and Lord. And so in our cultural context, grace alone speaks, I think, against two ways of thinking. I think it speaks against uh, measuring myself by my merits. And so we try, to, you know, we try out to get into a soccer team or the netball team. Uh, if we're successful uh, in our HSC, uh, then we get accepted into a place at university. Uh, if we work hard and if we are good at our work, then we get promoted. On the other hand, if we are lazy, uh, we get sacked. Uh, success is rewarded and failure is punished. So if we apply that thinking to God, it becomes all about me being good enough to impress God, and that's completely the opposite to grace. But I think uh, there's a second way that uh, grace alone speaks to our culture, and that's in the area of entitlement, which says, I deserve good things, irrespective of how I behave or perform. It's my right to have a fulfilling life. And if there is a heaven, then it's my right to go there. And that's also the complete opposite of grace. So 
Grace, by definition, is not a reward and it's not a right. All we can do is accept it. And so the word grace isn't in our passage today. Uh, You will not read it in our passage, but it is the dominant theme as we look at what makes us right before God. So the opening words of this section, uh, have a look at them with me. Uh, They ground our perspective again uh, in what God has done for us. Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It's no trouble for me to write the same thing to you again, and it's a safeguard for you. So this letter began by praising God because of God's good work that he's done in our lives. And as a result of God's good work, it produces the fruit of righteousness. So people should be able to see the difference God makes in our lives. And when it comes to our rightness before God, then we rejoice in the Lord alone. And so the Bible uses all sorts of different words to describe Jesus. So Jesus is the eternal son of God. Uh, He is the Christ or the Messiah uh, who fulfills the promises of the Old Testament. And in the New Testament, in this context, it's talking about Jesus as Lord, who now sits at the right hand of the Father. But for some people, even today, grace isn't enough. They just feel that you have to add something extra. So in this section of the letter, Paul is writing against those, those so-called Christians who say you need Christ, so we're not taking Christ away, but you also need the Old Testament law. And in particular... Uh, you need the sign uh, for males to be circumcised. Now, are we ready for a little bit of Male Anatomy 101 uh, with visual aids? No, either am I. Uh, uh, I, I'm not ready at all. Uh, But don't make me repeat these words, okay? The short version of circumcision is the removal of the foreskin from around the head of the penis. I'm not saying that again. (laughs) And for the descendants of Abraham, this is very significant. Okay, because this was a sign of their covenant with God and their commitment to that covenant. So God is saying, I will be your God and you will be my people. But now, through Jesus, things have changed. So Jesus didn't come to abolish the law as if it was you know, one whopping big mistake, but he did come to fulfil the law. And so we now relate to God, not through the law, but through Jesus. And so it's a bit like scaffolding you know, on a building site. You know, in a time and a place, that scaffolding is really important. It has a role to play as you build the building. But once the building is built, then you don't need the scaffolding anymore. And that's the same with us and the Old Testament law. The law has done its thing. But for some people, they want to keep bringing the law back in. And so Paul wants to be clear about what he thinks about that. Verse 2, watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. Yeah, most of the time uh, when we get angry, it's, it's more of a misplaced anger and a, a self-righteous anger. Uh, but there is a time 
to be angry. Uh, to be angry when people distort and dishonour God. And so more often than not, there's two areas where anger is expressed in the New Testament. And so against hypocrisy and it's against false teaching. Because as soon as we try to add something to how we are saved, we take away from what Christ has done for us on the cross. And we end up loading up on ourselves a burden that we cannot possibly bear. So if we are saved by good works, hypothetically, if we're saved by good works and grace, so it's God's work and my work put it together, then it's a little bit like me trying to lift a truck. Okay, and you can imagine, you know, God says, look, I'll tell you what, I'll lift the front end, which is, you know, the heavy bit with the engine. Uh, you just lift the back and, you know, and, and we'll get the job done. You know, from my perspective, it, it, I'm, I'm no better off than when we started. It doesn't matter whether I have to lift the whole truck or half the truck or a quarter of the truck. I can't lift the truck. Uh, if we try to add good works to our salvation, it's like trying to lift a truck. How can we ever possibly be good enough for a holy and perfect God? And thankfully, that is not who we are called to be. We are simply called to accept grace. And so if Jesus fulfills the law and we stand with Jesus, then we get what was promised in the law. And that's why Paul can say, for it is we, the Christians today, who are the circumcision. We who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. So what do we contribute to sharing in God's promise to Abraham? The answer is absolutely nothing. We're saved by grace alone. But we live by obedience. So to put it another way, good works are not the means of our salvation, but they are the fruit of our salvation. And if there's no fruit or we continue to sin, and if we just presume on God's grace as if it's my right, then we should feel deeply unsettled. Because either we've got out of step with God's spirit, we've lost the path, or, worse still, there's no salvation there at all. You know, Jesus says, not all who cry, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of God. I reckon perhaps they are the most frightening words of the Bible. Because there is hope, but it's actually a misguided hope. It's a misguided security. So Paul rebukes these mutilators of the flesh, but he also uses his own life as an example to hammer home the point. So look, read with me. If someone else thinks they have reason to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regards to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. You know, for a Jewish person, Paul really was the ultimate example of good. He had the right family pedigree. He was obedient to the law even from birth. 
He knew the scriptures. He obeyed the scriptures. He was zealous for the glory of God. He was there when they stoned Stephen, approving of what was going on. And now all of that is about to get taken away. In our modern context, we might think of good before God you know, as a commitment to church uh, or perhaps our moral behaviour. Uh, but more often than not, uh, good is now defined culturally with our acts of service. So we look at someone like Fred Hollows, uh, who you might not have heard of, but uh, you know, dedicated his life to helping people see. Uh, or perhaps someone like Bill and Melinda Gates, who give away billions of dollars each year to humanitarian causes. And we think, you know, surely these people are the best of humanity and surely God would welcome them into, you know, into his heaven. You know, surely this is good enough. Now, they might get into heaven, uh, but it won't be because of their goodness. For Paul, everything he thought he had that made him right before God He now looks at it all and considers it nothing. But whatever were were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him. You know, as Paul writes this letter to the Philippians, he really has lost everything. You know, some of it he cast aside, uh, some of it was taken from him. But, you know, he went from being a man who's respected in, in Jewish society, who had power and influence, and yet he turned his back on it all. You know, he turned his back on his place in society, on his love for the law, and instead he's now a prisoner. Uh, And he does it because what he has gained is of infinitely more worth than what he has lost. He can say, I've lost nothing. In fact, everything I had was garbage. In fact, a more literal translation would be, everything I had was sewerage. It was of no value at all because what I have in Christ is so good and so precious. You know, Jesus uh, said something similar when he talks about the bloke who finds a field that's got a treasure in it. And the bloke goes off and he sells everything he's got, gives it all away, just so he can buy the field and get the treasure. It's worth everything. So let's put it back on ourselves. I want you to bundle up in your brain all of those things that you feel make life valuable and significant and perhaps happy. So family uh, might be a big one, Uh, our children, our grandchildren, uh, our friendships, uh, good health. Uh, Then we can think about things perhaps like uh, the respect we achieve in our work uh, or our financial success or the pleasure that we get from our leisure, Uh, perhaps the influence we have in our community uh, or just that, that, that good feeling we get from being generous and charitable to others. If we took it all and bundled it together, could we say, I consider them garbage 
that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Would we be willing to give it all up for the sake of Christ? And certainly for many Christians around the world, that is a very real question. If you've ever um, met someone who's uh, become a Christian out of a a different cultural context or a different religious context, uh, they will often tell you about the price they have paid to follow Christ. Uh, For some, it means being ostracised from their family. Uh, Some are abused emotionally uh, or financially, uh, sometimes uh, physically. And my, my point isn't to be outraged by the perpetrators but to be emboldened by the courage of those Christians who stand up for their convictions. Our culture would commend us if we gave it all up for love. That's something they understand. We like the story of Romeo and Juliet, Uh, except for the ending bit where they all die. We prefer our romantic ending to end a little more positively. Uh, But giving it all up for love, we like that idea. But giving it all up for a love of God, well, that just seems ridiculous. I think it does feel like it's getting harder to be a Christian in this country. Uh, We are constantly told that we're standing on the wrong side of history, uh, that our values are outdated and our Christian superstitions are a thing of the past. Uh, We're hardly getting thrown to the lions though, are we? But I still think that God is using even this season, even this mild pressure in the big scheme of things, to push us to see clearly where we stand. Uh, That we do actually have to make a choice about whether we stand with the world or stand for Christ. And we really do have to start to count the cost. And for Paul, he's chosen his side. So verse 10, I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participate in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. You know, knowing Christ is more than just a cognitive understanding. It's more than just understanding the events of history and scripture. It cuts to the heart of what we love, even to the point of giving up everything for the love of Christ. And it's about our experience of the power of God. So the power of the resurrection is an unusual phrase, but it's about God's power to overcome sin and death. Uh, There is nothing above God. There's no law of nature or impersonal force or moral absolute that limits the capacity of God. He is completely sovereign, completely in control. And the power that he has over sin and death is the same power that he gives us to have the will and conviction and capacity to stand up for Christ, even in the midst of suffering. And sometimes that's hard to appreciate because we certainly don't feel that powerful. And when we're tempted, we certainly don't feel that strong. But God assures us that through his Holy Spirit that he is with us and actually we have more strength than perhaps we feel. 
And we shouldn't be too surprised when we suffer. Jesus says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. Another time he says, a servant is no greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. Suffering is part of being a Christian. Uh, Everyone suffers uh, because we live in a messed up world. Uh, But Christians will suffer even more simply for being Christians. And the suffering is worth it because even suffering in life now is better than being completely lost. And we can see the end goal. We can see what our suffering will achieve. And so we hold on to that. Verse 11, becoming like him in his death and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. We know uh, from what Paul has already said that his somehow is not about doubting the end result. He's not doubting that it will end with him being saved by the grace of God. He's confident of the eternal outcome. What he's not so confident on is the path. Uh, What road will God take him? What suffering will he have to endure to get there? But he knows the end. He's very clear. I think as we uh, reflect on this passage today, there's perhaps uh, two quite distinct challenges that come out. Uh, The first is the idea that we can somehow be good enough for God. And Paul wants us to be clear. We are saved by grace alone. And that's just a huge relief, isn't it? Because we all know, you know, we can, even when we try to be good on the outside, we know we're not great on the inside. So if it was all about good, then we really would be stuffed. Uh, but we are thankful for grace alone. Uh, but the second, I think, idea is more confronting. We are saved by grace, and we take hold of that grace by putting our faith in Christ. But are we willing to let go of everything else? Are we willing to endure the ridicule and the scorn of the world? Are we willing to suffer for the sake of knowing Christ? Is this a cause that's really worth fighting for? Because being Christian isn't just about the end, it's also about the journey. And so if you're a Christian here today, I hope you are sitting there with a resounding yes in your mind. If you're not a Christian here today, and if you're thinking about being a follower of Christ, then I'm not sure I've painted a particularly enticing picture uh, for why you should become a Christian, at least not in worldly terms. But I pray that God will open your eyes to see why a road that can be so difficult, that can actually cause you pain, is also so worth it. And the view at the end is spectacular. Let me close with these words from Paul. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. Amen.